Ave Maria. You're listening to MonkCast, a podcast from the monks of St. Benedict's Abbey. And we're continuing our series of Meet a Monk, where we just get to know a little bit about some of the monks in the Abbey. And today on the show, we have Father Marion. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Father. You're welcome. You're welcome. So yesterday was the Super Bowl, so I thought I'd better begin the podcast with a little bit about that. Uh, did you have a favorite team going in? Uh, I was favoring the Patriots. Oh, okay. I was favoring the Patriots, Yeah. which might be a little unusual because I normally tend to, I didn't actually look at the point spread, but I generally favor underdogs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was rooting for the Patriots last night. Sure. Well, they, they had a run. They were... They took the took the lead with about what nine minutes ago or something, yeah. and then yeah, was... I didn't see all of the game. I saw the end. I saw the first half. There was a middle part of the third quarter. I didn't see. Sure, I was doing some other things. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun game to watch. I, I didn't have too much of a stake in it, but it was it was fun to watch offensively. They definitely racked up some points and some offensive yardage. So, all right, so let's uh, move on from sports here and get into the what we're actually here for. Okay. And so let's begin with, could you tell me a little bit about your family and where you grew up? Okay. I've got a little bit of an unusual family background in the sense that I come from a split family. Um, in the sense that what happened is when I was a little kid, I'm seven years old, we moved to Council Grove, Kansas. We were originally from Michigan, just outside of Ann Arbor. Um, what does that mean? Well, I was the seventh of eight, and most of my brothers and sisters were actually already adults and out of the house, even married by the time that happened. And so I came to Kansas. Um, they're back there in most cases. And so we have a, you know, a split family. I go back to Michigan for family reunions. You, I, you know, I consider myself a Kansan, but also I can also refer to myself in all seriousness as a Michigander. I sometimes do that. Uh, in fact, all my sports teams tend to be Michigan teams, um, for good or ill on that one you know uh, some of them struggle but uh in that in that sense i've got a michigan background Um, the funny thing is i don't have the same accent that a lot of my brothers and sisters have i sound like a kansan and in fact if i go back to michigan people pick up on that Um, i've had to actually show a driver's license along with like one of my brothers to prove that we were related especially my older brother because he's about 20 years ahead of me in age and so there's a wide gap we don't talk the same and so people sometimes think we're lying if we say that we're even related and actually we're brothers and so the difference is kind of a unique thing yeah all right so when did you begin feeling the call to the priesthood during your life okay well I don't know that I could pinpoint it to an exact date, but, you know, like a lot of people, you'd be surprised at how many young people who are Catholics will have the sense that maybe I ought to be a priest or a nun or something like that or a sister or something when they're real little. And I had that idea, I could probably say, oh, fifth, sixth grade. I know I could pinpoint at least something on those lines back around that age for this reason. When I was a seventh grader, I told a little girl at the bus stop, you know, what do I want to do when I grow up? You know, what do I want to be? And I was think, thinking maybe a priest. And I know why I told her is that her father was a Methodist minister. And so this little girl, her name was Jenny, I told her because she wouldn't think I was crazy. 
with her father's background. So mm-hmm. I know it was there. Yeah. Um, it, you know, that that isn't a tremendous understanding of the priesthood, obviously, at, you know, age mm-hmm. 12 or something, however old I was. But I was definitely in middle school because mm-hmm. we were waiting for the bus, and I rode the bus to middle school. Um, so that kind of idea was there. You know, I did altar serving and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I had some contact with priests and things. They weren't utterly foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that idea was definitely there at that young age. It's not an unusual thing. I mean, I know that if you were to talk, especially to older priests, and I mean older especially when I first got here 20 years ago, you know, someone in their 80s or up around 90 years old, it, you know, a lot of them would have said at seven years old, I knew I wanted to be a priest. I'm not, well, I don't know that I was quite at that, but I had the idea not too long after that in terms of my own age. Sure, sure. What about the Benedictine order? Did that come after the priesthood or during it, before? Yeah, that's where I, that's where it gets a little convoluted because I really didn't have much exposure, in fact, no exposure at all to monasteries. That actually came after several years Okay. Um, when I came back to it. I'd probably have to explain, and I'm sure you want me to, how I got to that point. Yeah, that'd be great. You okay. can go into that. All right. And here's where, here's where it gets complicated. Now, okay, I've got this idea in my head. I'm mm-hmm. like 12. Mm-hmm. It might have been there a little earlier, but we'll say for, to keep it simple, 12 years old, you know, it's still there, maybe 13, 14. I didn't know what to do with it. And I don't think I ever really said anything to anybody. Like I say, maybe it was just because, you know, I thought, you know, everybody's going to think I'm crazy, exception being this little girl, Jenny. (laughs) But that was there. And so going through high school, I didn't do much with it. And I had some of the typical teenage stubbornness. Um, I wasn't the most teachable individual in, like, uh, Oh, like religion class and things like that. I went to mm-hmm. CCD and all that. Uh, that's my bad on that one. I mean, I don't think the best theological teacher in the world could have taught me on a few things. In fact, I have that reputation now. I can be a little hard to get through to, hard-headed. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay, there, sure. there it is. But in any case, went through high school, and it was about as typical a high school background for small towns you'd come up with, you know, on the football team, did sports, Played in the marching band. That became my thing in college. Went off to college, and this is the thing. I sort of fell into the party scene. And when I got there, I didn't really really know what to do. And, and, you know, and I was looking for kind of a, you know, it was a new experience to me. And, you know, I, I hadn't allowed myself, frankly, to be all that well-formed. And mm-hmm. it can be a difficult challenge to do that with any teenager. But here I am, and I sort of fell into that and went into that sort of thinking. I kind of drank my way through college, frankly. Um, and looking back on it, it it's kind of an, a strange thing. I mean, I, I'm not real proud of my college years mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because it was, it was pretty hedonistic. And now the, the hypocritical thing about it is I went to Mass every Sunday. Mm. Mm-hmm. I've never doubted the existence of God um, or anything like that. Frankly, I was going to Mass because it's what you do on Sunday mornings. Right, right. It was that sort of an existence. Um, 
the difference with me, this is a, th or, I don't know, maybe difference isn't, isn't the right word. Where I was lucky is this. I've always had academic aptitude. Mm -hmm. School's always been a fairly easy thing for me. And I knew how to study, and it came easily. So I kept a very good GPA. Um, it, it, that was the simple part. And I worked hard on, on studies. I, that's the one thing I did right. Mm -hmm. Where I was very fortunate in is that I don't have an addictive personality. A lot of people would have turned into alcoholics in that kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. And I never had that problem. It was a pretty bankrupt life. Now, here's the thing. My big thing in, in college was I was in the band. I played trombone. And it was a lot of fun, marching band and all that. I was in just about every band you could be in, short of the orchestra. You know, took lessons and all that sort of stuff and, mm -hmm. um, and stayed around. I went into graduate studies. This was all in Emporia State, by the way. You know, stayed fairly close to home. That's, you know, within, within an hour's drive, mm -hmm. a little less than that, in fact. But doing all this... I was involved in a lot of things. You know, I, keep in mind, I said, I go to Mass every Sunday. I was at the Catholic Campus Center. I did activities there. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. Like I say, there's some hypocritical things going on there. Um, in all those bands, um, some other odds and ends. I lived in a dorm for a while. I was in the honors program, so I mm -hmm. ran into some kids that way. Um, I knew everybody on campus. So like I, I remember once walking with a friend from one end of the campus to another to a class between you know that, that 10, 15 minutes they always give you. Right. I knew about every other person or every third person on the way passing through. I could say hi to them, and, and sometimes it might be I met them in a bar. Right. <laughs> but I knew them. Exactly. I knew them. Mm -hmm. and, and they were they were amazed at it. And I didn't necessarily, excuse me, didn't know them very well. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I I had a, you know, a, a list of social contacts. You, I could say that much. Now, right. what happened is, if you go through grad school, people start graduating, and you get a little isolated. You got a lot of work to do. I started getting pretty lonely. Okay, now, and you can imagine, you can imagine that, that this went beyond just not having a lot of friends. I don't have a very fulfilling lifestyle. There's nothing there. There's no spiritual sustenance to it. And I really started wondering, why do you even live? Hmm. You know, what, what's the point of life? Um, and how is it showing itself? Well, it used to be I could go to a bar or a frat party. I didn't do a lot of those. I, but, and I'd know half the people in the place, you know. And, and so there was always something to do. And what happened? Well, um, all those folks were graduating and moving on, and my social scene was getting smaller and, and, and the people that I knew. And I'd go and there'd be nobody, or just a few, or just something. And it was just literally sucking the life out of me. Mm. Now, what happened is one night I went to one, one of those bars I stomped through hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And I got one of those big 32-ounce beers, you know, and started looking around the place. I'm on the prowl. Mm -hmm. And I realized I don't know anybody in this, in this place. And here's what happens. I was thinking, oh, no, it's going to be another one of those nights. 
and something hit me. Now, this was God. It was definitely a spiritual experience. If you can imagine this, you're looking at a room as an observer rather than a participant. I'm seeing it, almost like a sociologist might be looking at something, observing something. Yeah. And what am I seeing? Suddenly, I'm seeing, okay, here's this blaring music, and all these people running around. It's always loud, yelling and screaming, carrying on. Mm-hmm. And I realized, just look how frivolous it is. Look at it. And the, the message that came to me was, you think you're going to find your happiness with these people? Mm-hmm. Look at them. Just look at them. And then the thought hit me. This was more from me. And you're right in the midst of it. You're one of them. I set that beer down, and I walked home. I might have even been in tears. Okay. Mm -hmm. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Now, that was a Friday night. I didn't go out that Saturday. I mean, you couldn't have gotten me into a bar at anything. I might have rented a movie or something like that. It was disturbing. It was a disturbing experience. I mean, it was, I'd I'd been laid bare. You never, this is something I've learned as a priest, this is why you never slam somebody who comes to Mass. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes over the years, pastors and things have made that mistake, chewing out people who are there for their lack of faith. No, they're there. Well, I was there on Sunday. And believe me, I've got a, what you'd call a, you know, nobody would have been accusing me of being a saint at that point, you know. If I'd have listed my sins, they'd have been numerous. If any of my confessors would have realized what was going on, they should have been all over me on this. But, okay, here I am. You go to Mass on Sunday morning. I mean, I I believed in God, and I had some sense of Jesus being divine. I mean, I couldn't really have explained any of that. Why is, do you believe in a resurrection or something? That No, I couldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. But I'm sitting there listening to a homily. Okay. Um, if anybody knows Father Bill Porter... Uh, who's part of the Archdiocese of Kansas City. He was there at the time, and I don't even know what he was talking about. Wasn't paying attention at all, and that's not a slam on Father Bill and his homiletics because he's quite good at it. At least that's how I remember him. But mm-hmm. I'm not paying any attention. I'm having a conversation with God, or some, throwing this out, and really disturbed. And one thing I should add in all this, you know, in, as I mentioned, the kind of loneliness there. At that point, I'm, you know, I'm a typical college male, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe I'll get married or something like that, and I'm feeling utterly lonely and bankrupt at that point, disturbed, and I kind of threw out something to God of like, you know, how about some happiness in life? You know, maybe a girlfriend or something, you know. And this is the answer I got back. Why? Why should I do that? You'll just abuse it. Hmm. And it was true. I mean, I was pinned down dead to rights by God on that one. He had me. And this is what happened. Out of some desperation, I said, well, well, fine, I'll do it your way. It's exactly what I said. All I can say is that something broke inside me. And I was never the same after that. And I think that's really what you'd call conversion. You know, the sense of like, you know, Protestants often talk about this. Evangelicals, you know, conversion experience. Well, that's what I would call it. Um, I've never studied it in any kind of depth, but that's what I think that was. Um, And I was pretty much a spiritual wreck at that point. Okay, well, what does it mean? I'll do it your way. All right, well, a week later, I had, you know, a uh, 
I'm trying to obey the commandments, you, you know. And as I say, this through the week, I mean, I don't know how well I did even, but, okay, you know, there's a sense here, i, I got to change the way I'm living, I'm trying to pray and things like that. Well, the next week, there happened to be a vocation director who'd come in, and he gives you the typical vocation talk and all this. Okay, and I'm listening to it, and it, it, was, it was a fine vocation talk, homily, et cetera. But what I'm wondering about is the next day I'm, I'm going to Mass and I'm thinking, you know, what about that idea? It was still in my head, that little thing I told that little girl Jenny on that bus stop. It was still, it, it, it had never gone away. It was, you know, it was buried, you know, call it the back burner, whatever you mm-hmm. will. But it was there, and I was kind of like, well, what about that? Maybe you got to face that. And he said something, and I'd say this to anybody, you know, you don't really, uh, you're not making the decision to go to be a priest if you go visit a seminary or something, or you talk to a vocations director. You're just looking into it, and that's the way he presented it. And it was good. It was a good thing he could have said because if he'd have said, "Well, be, you know, be a priest," I'd have been so overwhelmed and confused and mm-hmm. et cetera right. that that I wouldn't have known what to do. I'd have probably been back in a bar, okay, or something like that, just yeah. out of fear at that yeah. point. Um, or something like that, you know, doing something just, just to avoid everything, just, just scared. Well, okay. And I got to thinking about it. And what I ended up doing was, as I was, I think I was walking to work. And I was thinking that when I was doing all this and mulling it over the next day and saying, well, maybe I got to pay attention to this. You know, God was working with me through that week and is, you know, trying to take him seriously. I mean, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I'll do it your way. Well, wait a minute, what what does that really mean? I, there's this idea, more or less working out. And Well, I talked to that Father Bill Porter, you know, and I talked to him. And what's he hand me? A, uh, a flyer. And I think they still do this up there. It was for Conception Abbey. They mm-hmm. do something for their, for their uh, seminary. It was their seminary that was actually putting this on. They, you know, a come and see kind of thing. And it was like in November, okay, a few weeks, a month, something like that. And he suggested it. So, okay, yeah, I signed up for it. Ended up there. And that was really the first the first moment where I was saying, okay, I, I'm doing something that's taking this seriously to where I'm really taking a move forward in the sense of looking into this with some kind of, a, you know, seriousness or purpose or something and I'm trying to really find an answer okay the sure. oddball thing about that is I had to come through Atchison to get here the oddball thing this is very humorous I'm sitting down at the stoplight getting ready to go over the bridge in Atchison you know the old bridge that is no longer there now they have a new one right. right and I'm seeing a sign that says Benedictine College I'm sitting in a Ford Thunderbird by the way white Thunderbird we called it the Stormtrooper it was an incredible car for all those of you who are car buffs but in any case, there I am, and I'm looking at it, and I said, there's no way you'd ever get me in a place like a monastery. <laughs> and, of course, the light turns green, and over the bridge I go. The funny thing at Conception, one of their monks was giving a little talk in this, and he said something like that. He relayed a story mm-hmm. about his own life coming out of a, a retreat at a Trappist monastery. I don't know who this was. You know, all of his buddies loved it. And he says, you couldn't get me in a monastery to save my life. And here he is. He's a monk. And I'm laughing at this story. Okay. Well, 
I'm discerning this, and Council Grove is from the Diocese of Wichita, and I was talking to their vocation director off and on over the next well, a couple of years. And what I ended up coming up with was this decision. It was in the spring at some point. Um, by that point, I was in graduate school, as I'd mentioned, and I was thinking, do I finish grad studies? Maybe I ought to go into seminary. And I was sort of hem- hemming and hawing that. I was working on a master's degree in history. Okay. And I came up with a decision that let's just get into seminary. And again, that would have been, I think it was on a Saturday night or something, a Saturday evening. I discerned that. Now, the next morning I wake up. I wake up, and it's one of those mornings, inexplicably you're off on the wrong foot and nothing's right, and I don't know why. I got to go to Mass, and by this point, you know, I'm, I'm living, ironically, this is something that helped in, ref, in recompense, uh, excuse me, in retrospect, this was a tremendous grace. By that point, I'd happened to have landed into a basement apartment that was right next to the Catholic Campus Center. So I just jumped next door to go to Mass. Now, where that was really helpful in this discernment was coming back from classes and things. I'm stopping in front of the Blessed Sacrament, go to a lot of daily Masses and things like this. Mm. That helped a lot. In retrospect, it was something that uh, God was working there. I mean, I was in that apartment for a reason. Well, here, I'm thinking this, and there I am in the apartment thinking about it on a Saturday. The next morning, I wake up, and I'm running around, and for whatever reason, just things aren't right. I'm not really putting anything together with it. It just, I was off. I go to Mass, same feeling, come out. At that point, I was working in an auto parts place, and I had to work that day. And I had about an hour, half hour, something like that, between Mass and when I needed to be in work. So I said, well, I got a little time. I don't want to go back to the apartment. I decided I'll say a rosary. So I drove over to the park, and I'm sitting in that T-bird praying this rosary. And then it hit me. You can credit the Blessed Mother for jumping in on this, that you need to check out St. Benedict's Abbey. It was just one of those things. Is I knew it was real, and I still to this day say that. And that that's by the way why I go by the name Marion. Um, it's three fourths of Blessed Mother. A lot of people don't know this. It's also one fourth Mary Magdalene. Interesting. Coming back here, I am thinking, well, I need to make a call. Okay, now at the time, Father Meinred is our vocations director, and. What I had decided, I, I called him up on that Monday and threw this out on, on a voicemail that, you know, I've got an idea of interested in the place. And he called back, of course. Well, what I was thinking was, what is going to happen? If he hears this story, he's going to think I'm nuts. You know, I'm hearing voices from heaven and stuff. I mean, you know, it, you're either... Either hearing God or you're completely crazy. And, and, and so, well, this is the thing. Father Meinrad took it seriously, mm-hmm. and he invited me up for a visit. And that's how I got up to this place. Now, another help was he put me to work. You know, this is what they do with vocations guests. You know, at that point, like I said, I think it was May when I first came up. And, and he put me with probably the person that, if there's anyone I've ever had 
to say that maybe the person I've had the greatest spiritual experience with would have been Father Benedict LaRoque. You know, and if there was ever a walking saint, I think it was him. Now, there's a couple other people running around this place who are now deceased that I would put in that same category. Mm-hmm. But he had something, and working with him, he was just a joyous man. He had something that I just haven't seen very often. A lot of people who knew him and are around here would tell you that, and people, you know, parishioners he worked with and, and spiritual directees and things. He had it. Well, that helped a lot. Just, we were planting flowers. That's what we were doing. It was, it was flower season. Mm-hmm. And doing that, okay, I had a good experience. I made more visits, and that's how I ended up here. I can say this much. God has never told me why. I've never had it laid out to me in any kind of message, like the thing in the bar or the thing in the T-bird, where anybody has said, you need to be a monk at St. Benedict's Abbey. You're, you must be. That would be very, it, it would be too easy. Yeah. At some point, there's got to be a leap of faith. You know, do I think it's home? Yeah, that's a lot of the reason I made solemn vows. It was home. I realized it one day. I'd come back from something. I don't know if it was work or at the school. At the time, I was teaching at Mar Hill. Okay. Or something like that. You know, but, but it, it, yeah, I could have been out doing something. I don't know what it was, but I was home. Mm-hmm. I was home in a, in a sense of, you know, a spiritual place that I was supposed to be at and things like this. Um, that's how I, I knew. But it would be way too easy for me if God were to say, you should be a monk at St. Benedict's Abbey. That's where I have to make that leap. Right. Yeah, I think it's easy. I think a lot of my friends and people my age, college, we just want to get everything figured out. Understand. It's, yeah. At some point, faith is a risk. A vocation is a risk. It doesn't matter whose vocation it is. Even Jesus had to do it. He's got to be willing to abandon himself to his father on the cross. And you know, Mary had to do it before the angel, not knowing where it's going. At some point, you got to trust. Mm-hmm. Right. That this is God. Is he good? Yes. Yeah. You can know that by reason, but also by faith, all the things in Scripture and things. That's kind of where I have been. Taking the leap. Yeah. For sure. I'm not so, real proud of my past because I... I Kind of made a wreck of things, and the only only thing I can say, I, yeah, like I say, I was, I never had an issue with school, and that helped. I mean, and I was lucky in that respect, and that I could keep that going. Um, you know, it wasn't a total disaster that way. Yeah, great story. Uh, so, as far as school goes, let's just go to that just a bit, because you're the history professor at. Benedictine College, one of them? Well, not exactly a history professor. I'm an adjunct. Right, okay. And that's because I'm yeah. working on that dissertation, which sometimes seems like a never-ending project. It it goes and fits in, in, in fits and starts. Right. And that's for your doctorate, correct? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and that's through Kansas State. Okay. You know, um, through their history department. Sure. Everybody always asks. I, my interest is primarily would be Southern history, okay. Civil War and Reconstruction, I know some about modern China, uh, but 19th century, 18th century are more my interests. Um, but I like yeah. it all. Sure. Yeah. I like it all. What is your favorite part about teaching at the college? 
I enjoy being in front of a class. I get to ham it up a little bit. That's certainly mm-hmm. part of it. Um, I don't know if, if this is maybe the answer exactly, but, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to put together a story, something that explains all the data and the various facts and, yeah. you know, and that sort of thing into kind of a, a narrative. Yeah. You know, that's oftentimes how I preach, by the way, is I, I, I like to be able to construct narratives. Yeah. Um, as I really do think there is a, is an overall plan to it, you know, the theology of history, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, well, it's been said, you know, if you, this is not my original idea, but it's a good one. If you go through a scrapbook, somebody else's scrapbook, and you go thumbing through it, you see all these pictures and images and little mementos and things, and you wonder, what were they up to? What were they mm-hmm. doing? You know, this is, this is as I say, my, not, not my own idea. It's actually from somebody who was looking at a scrapbook of an old relative. It may not make much sense. Right. You have to put it together. And you can do that on a, certainly on a, what you call a secular level mm-hmm. or a natural level. You know, write a history book on, you know, American history from colonies to the present or something or 1492 to the present or even prehistory. Sure. The overarching story, though, ultimately, is what God is up to. Mm-hmm. That there is a plan to all this. I mean, U.S. history, in the end, you'd have to say, okay. And I'm not the first to say this either. You know, you could, Saint Bede would say this about the English-speaking people, you know, England. God is ultimately drawing all the nations into His salvation. Yeah. Isn't that it? is the great work of it. Mm-hmm. And it's not always easy to see. You know, I would say this, if you were looking at something like, you know, the, the Holocaust or Auschwitz, and you're saying, okay, where is God working in this? No one's going to come up with an easy, simple answer on that one. Now, I believe there, that he was. Right. It may not be immediately evident. Right. You know. Um, it's a it's a more interesting way to learn history, too, on the student end, when you're actually getting a story presented to you rather than just a lot of names and dates, which is what a lot of yeah. kids think that history is, just all these names and dates and events that they have to memorize rather than an actual story. Right, right. And you had me in class. You exactly. were actually one of my former students, so you see that. Got and, it firsthand. And, and I, I avoid dates like the plague. There's a few. Um, I like timelines once in a while. You right. have to have things in a sequence. But to know specifically that this happened on this date, that's right. often not all that important. Um, once in a while, if you didn't know the declaration was signed in 1776, July mm-hmm. 4th, we'll just say for simplicity, yeah, there's a few you need to know like that. 1941, December 7th, you know, things like this. Right. 1914. Monumental. Right. Yeah. For sure. Maybe the turning point dates. Yeah, Definitely. So. But the greater thing is to look for that story. And if you, if you just look at events, and this is part of, again, my theology, if there's history, if his history says anything to me, it's this. We need a Redeemer. We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. Every society has tried to put together a kind of utopia, and it might be just one person's vision of it, uh-huh. you know, a dictator or something like that, the world as it should be. And no one's ever succeeded. 
every society seems to crumble. The only one that keeps going is the church. Right. And even it's got its issues. That is true. I mean, no one's <laughs> no one has ever accused the Catholic Church of being perfect, not even Catholics. Mm-hmm. We need some kind of hope. I think it comes from God himself and Jesus Christ to enter the world, to literally reform it and put it back together again. Uh, in, in theology, I think you'd say this is the new heaven and a new earth. We're moving to some great day when God intervenes for the last time and reassembles everything. You know, the key thing there being faith. Yeah. yeah. Repentance is out of his believers. I hope I'm in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope everyone else is too. Yeah. We love our enemies. Because without that idea, history, if you're just going through all the events that happened, man, it can get pretty depressing. So Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we made a lot of progress mm-hmm. on things. I, I, but I have a, and this is something that people often pick up on. They often misread me on this, too. I don't have a lot of faith in progress. And it comes from reading things. If, if you think about it, now I always joke with my students. You might have heard me do this in class, in fact, is that, you know, there used to be an outhouse over by Farrell Hall, you know, the old monastery and the things, and, and there isn't anymore. And I'm glad. I think everybody who lives in Farrell Hall would agree. You know, we have indoor plumbing. This is wonderful. We can do fabulous things. We can split an atom, release tremendous amounts of energy, you know, power the world with it. If we could figure out how to do it, without releasing all kinds of radiation, you know, maybe it would be great. You know, certainly if we could fuse some of those atoms. Uh-huh. But we can also build an atomic bomb. We've created, in our progress, we've literally created the possibility of annihilating ourselves. And this is where I can be a little bit of a pessimistic skeptic, you know, and it's okay. You can be an optimist too. That's okay as well. That's kind of where I sit as a philosophy. If I would say there's a philosophy there to say, okay, History's good. We've made a lot of progress. This is wonderful. We don't have smallpox in the world. Human beings have an amazing capacity right. to create things. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons I have to keep my skepticism in check. Mm-hmm. You know, but certainly God has this capacity. He's the one moving it. Right, right. Yeah. And that's where I say there is hope, that there is a God out there. And this is my theology of history. This God insists on sticking his nose into our business. You know, I'm convinced the watchmaker concept is wrong. We have a God that refuses to stay away. He did it with Israel. Desperate people cried out to God in the Exodus story. They probably couldn't have phrased a word. So great was their anguish, if you read that story. Uh Just a primal scream is the way I think of it. And God sent Moses. Mm -hmm. Lead them out Mm -hmm. to a promised land. Definitively, it's Christ. Yeah. That is definitely a more hopeful way to look at history. There's that that side of it. Yeah. For sure. The underlying story. And, And that's hope. That's hope. If you get discouraged in the world, I have to do this to myself all the time. Come back to that. Yeah. God heard his people's cry. He still does. In my own story, I think he heard mine. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned going home miserable out of a bar. That wasn't the first time I'd done it. 
that was not the first time I'd done it. Mm-hmm. And if you look at my story, as I told you, you can see a couple times in there where I think he heard me. Yeah. I know the Blessed Mother did. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great story because we all have those moments, but it's recognizing it as God's voice and hearing it and doing something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, really random question here about history. Sure. So if you sat down with coffee with a historical figure, uh, what, what, who would that be? Are we uh, restricting it to anyone, or can be can it be anybody? Or do you want to stick with saints, or? Oh, we could hit any, anywhere, anywhere, anywhere in history. Okay. When you say history, I know this is yeah. probably this is going to leave everybody flat. I tend to I tend to think you know the the, the secular folks. You know that what do you say the day to day kind of history that isn't religious in nature. Right. I'll leave it there. Ulysses S. Grant. He's my favorite historical figure, except for maybe Abraham Lincoln. George Washington's in there too, but. Ulysses S. Grant. Sure. So he gets a bad rap a little bit. Why do you, why do you want to sit down with coffee? Well, now first of all, as an historian, you yeah. know, the, and this is not a knock on Robert E. Lee. I think Grant might have been a little better general. I, mm-hmm. I agree with the, the modern scholars have kind of come to that conclusion. Okay, well, leave that for historical debate. Sure. I mean, um, Robert E. Lee caused enough trouble for Union generals to recognize that he can hold his own and carry his own weight, you know, on the battlefield for sure. Grant mastered his fear, and he he uh, he knew failure. He struggled with the alcohol, mm-hmm. and there's a story in his life, and I want to know what makes this guy go because I have to do this. I'm I'm an erratic person. I'm very up and down. I, a visiting monk who, who knows me said this once, you're not meek. And he was absolutely right. Um, my second favorite gospel is Jesus cleansing the temple. Mm-hmm. I love to see that fire. But in any case, what did Grant do? And he wasn't a fiery person by any means, but he had this sort of bulldog determination in himself. And there's a story in his life. And I, I see this and I want to know more that in his first days, after many failures, he was given his command as a colonel in the Civil War, kind of as a, well, we're desperate for people. We need leaders. Here's one with military experience. He'd already bombed out of the Army because of his drinking. And going into it, if you read his memoirs, highly recommended is if you, for two reasons. Fantastic history, but he's also a tremendous writer. Absolute clarity. If you can write like him, you're going to do great. But he said he's going into battle at Belmont, Missouri, as a colonel, and he said he says something to the effect of something like this, that his heart was just going up inside his throat, and it wasn't because he'd be, never been in combat. He had. He was a soldier in Mexico. Right. He was a soldier in Mexico. But this is the first time that he'd ever led other men into battle. And you can imagine, if something goes wrong, what is going to happen? And he had a couple of moments like that in his career where he mm-hmm. made mistakes. And a lot of people died. Yeah. But the funny thing was, as he's approaching this enemy encampment, when they got there, they were all gone. They'd fled. I think the smoke was still rising from their fires. And he realized that here is a person 
who was just afraid of me as I was of him. And that proved to be something for him, a lesson in his life that would help him become a great general, to take risks, to understand that maybe he ought to be worried about what he can do. Yeah. You know, and he went that way. And that's the thing. That's where I say, okay, what in your life can do that? It's grace. Mm-hmm. It's grace. It's Christ. That's present to you. That's what a sacrament does. You know, we go to Mass with the grace of the Eucharist, but the thing is it's something that extends to us even at this very moment right now. Right. Um, we're being drawn to our next Eucharist. Yeah. So you yeah. could say Grant in some ways kind of figured out how to take the leap, kind of take that yeah. leap of faith. Yeah, I don't know if necessarily that—I uh, don't know his religious views. Right. You know, I, I know that information is out there, and I've never really looked at it. But the sense of what you're seeing there on a natural level mm-hmm. needs to be something for yourself on your faith level, too. You've got to be willing to get up and act. Um, but I admire him because of that. All right, so this has been part one of the conversation with Father Marion. Stay tuned for part two. There'll be a question from a student about dryness and doubt and prayer that Father Marion will answer. You'll find both episodes and more on iTunes. Uh, look up MonkCast and you'll find it. And be sure to check out the Monk's Facebook and Twitter pages, as well as the website, kansasmonks.org.